Veterans Path, helping veterans find peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor through practical tools like meditation and mindfulness, physical and outdoor experiences, and a community of camaraderie. I'm John McCaskill, a Navy SEAL commander turned mindfulness teacher. Here on the Veterans Path podcast, I interview veterans, athletes, corporate leaders, and many others who found peace through the practices of meditation and mindfulness, breaking down the stigma of pursuing mental health and making it a priority, improving and saving lives. All right, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good day. I'm John McCaskill, your host, and thanks for tuning in to the Veterans Path Podcast. This podcast is just a piece of what we do. Veterans Path is actually a nonprofit working to introduce veterans and active service members to meditation and mindfulness, typically in outdoor settings, so they can find a sense of peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor. That's where the word path in our name comes from. And the point of this podcast is to make people more aware of what we do to increase support of Veterans Path, increase attendance at our retreats so we're able to help more veterans, and finally, to reduce the stigma around mindfulness, meditation, and seeking mental health support. Listeners and viewers, if you're enjoying the show, please give us a review or a like and share the show with anyone and everyone you think could benefit from our message. Also, you can directly support Veterans Path by clicking on the support button on the podcast or by visiting veteranspath.org forward slash donate. All right, today my guests are Marine Corps veterans, authors, and mental health experts, Sarah Sarah Plummer-Taylor and Dr. Kate Hendricks-Thomas. Bear with me as this intro is kind of long, but it's important to really lay the foundation for today's discussion, and these women are amazing, and so they've done a lot. Sarah is an established leader in the field of resilience building, mindfulness-based practices, and holistic wellness. Sarah guides trauma survivors, overwhelmed parents, which I think many of us are in this time, uh, and busy leaders and top organizations around the world to mindfully enhance the quality of their life and leadership. A former U.S. Marine intelligence officer who deployed twice to Iraq, Sarah is the author of Just Roll With It, Seven Battle-Tested Truths for Building a Resilient Life and contributing author to a number of peer-reviewed journal articles and academic texts. Sarah completed her bachelor's at the University of Virginia and her master's at the University of Denver and was an adjunct professor of health sciences at Charleston Southern University until 2018. Her current research focuses on mindfulness-based practices for families, as well as reintegration for veterans utilizing evidence-based mindfulness-based practices and cognitive neuroscience for prevention of death by suicide. She, she is involved with numerous collaborative research projects and programs designed in these areas. Sarah frequently travels in North America and Europe, speaking, consulting, and teaching the integration of mindfulness and leadership. Her clients include universities, high schools, partners in law firms, teachers, nonprofit organizations, and the US Department of Defense. Sarah volunteers through broad membership, advocacy, and service work for a variety of organizations, and she now lives in North Carolina with her husband, baby daughter, baby on the way, and two dogs. Kate is a Marine Corps veteran as well, with a doctorate in health education and health promotion. An active duty Marine from 2002 to 2008, she served in Iraq and at home 
as a military police officer. A public health researcher, Kate is a faculty member with George Mason University's Department of Global and Community Health. Her previous books include Bulletproofing the Psyche, Preventing Mental Health Problems in Our Military and Veterans, and Invisible Veterans, What, what Happens When Military Women Become Civilians Again, which my wife is a, uh, a veteran, and I think she would be uh, really curious to read that book. Sarah and Kate have a new book coming out entitled Stopping Military Suicides. And I've got a blurb here, but uh, I'm not gonna read that here because I wanna discuss that uh, throughout the show. Um, so I'll save that for later. And we're gonna learn a, a lot more about Sarah and Kate, their time in the Marine Corps, their books, uh, and their work doing, and that's one of the few times I've actually said books, plural on the intro, by the way, uh, and their work doing that they're doing now in the mental health arena. And that's all here in, in today's episode of the Veterans Path Podcast. All right, welcome back. As mentioned in the intro, my guests today are Marine Corps veterans, authors, and mental health experts, Sarah Plummer-Taylor and Dr. Kate Hendricks-Thomas. Welcome to the show, ladies. Thank you for having us. So happy to be here. I appreciate it. Now, now, Sarah, uh, I know you're just south of me in North Carolina, uh, and Kate, I'm assuming you're close to D.C. if you're on faculty at George Mason. Is that correct? Just outside, yes. Yeah. So uh, I guess uh, how's the weather is that always a, a, an opening question, but I'll skip that because <laughs> another obligatory question these days, or at least that the way I feel is is how are you dealing with what is going on with COVID-19? Uh, and Sarah, I'll start with you, as I know you've got a little one due later this month, and my wife is uh, also moonlighting as a doula, but that has all kind of been put on a screeching halt being a doula. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious, what have you seen as far as the effects on uh, your life personally and professionally uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic? It's been an interesting time. That's one kind of sweeping generalization to make uh, that has lots of ebbs and flows within that for sure. Um, I mean, we, we've felt really fortunate actually to have just moved to North Carolina uh, from Colorado. The particular neighborhood we live in has been especially helpful. We've had access to outdoors. Um, there are trails, I'm like looking outside my little treetop window here, um, right outside our door. And my daughter who just turned two in March is, I believe at least part forest creature. Uh, we've been out on the trails every day. She has a reputation in the neighborhood for, for being a runner and a, a, a little trail um, animal. So that has helped as far as applying a kind of maybe atypical methods of mindfulness, like being able to get out, um, to be able to get outside has been really, really helpful. Um, I've joked before, even before having kids, that that's my sanity check or my medicine is like fresh air and movement. And uh, my husband says that to me a lot. Sometimes he's like, just get outside. You need to go outside. I'm like, <laughs> I need. What I need. Um, not that it's a, you know, not that it's a cure-all, but um, yeah, t toddler wrangling and being now at this point, 36 and a half weeks pregnant. Wow. Um, not, not my most glowing time um, in, in my life, I would say. It's, it's been really challenging. We definitely haven't been able to access 
all elements of care that we had planned on um, to include. We, we have hired, uh, independently hired a doula who at this point we're pretty much certain will not be allowed in to the hospital with us for labor and delivery. Um, at this point, we're being told you can only have one person and that will likely be my husband. Um, but we are doing some preparatory phone calls with the doula and then depending on how restrictions change or not, she may just provide postpartum care. Um, but with this being my second child, we were um, really looking forward to having that support, um, just given kind of how our experience went with the birth of my first child. Really, really wanted a doula there this time, but um, very much in the letting go and acceptance, practicing that there you go. <laughs> right now as much as possible. But yeah, some days are butt kickers. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I obviously can't speak to the uh, to the pregnancy side of things, but I have seen the the doula side of things. Um, and my wife has been the same way in that she is able to help with the, the pre-labor and delivery stuff uh, mm -hmm. all in-house. And then when they go to the hospital, she's not allowed. Um, so it's, it's very interesting on, on that side of things, too. Uh, Kate, how about yourself? How are you doing with, uh, with things? Um, I would say I'm doing, I, I'm struggling a little bit, to be totally candid. Um, I am undergoing chemotherapy for cancer. So when the outbreak started, I knew I fell into that high risk category. Um, I also know that I'll be staying at home uh, for a while and having to be really careful for a while. So originally I was excited about staying at home. I had this aggressive homeschooling plan for my five-year-old. I mean, that child was on, he, he had an activity and uh, had me cracking a whip on him for six hours a day. <laughs> We've relaxed significantly because I, I found that uh, I wasn't leaving any space for my own writing or my own work. And, uh, you know, that, that leaves me feeling kind of depleted. So I, I would say I'm still working to find the balance. It's really easy for me to spend too much time watching the news on a given day or, um, you know, look at, look at the end of the day and realize I didn't get out and walk. So I think we're all trying to figure out what the new normal looks like, but I'm, I'm taking the long view and, and trying to give myself a little grace. Yeah, that's important. Uh, empathy and compassion, both for those around you and, and yourself. I think that's, uh, that's critical. So um, that all said, we'll get into the meat and potatoes of the show. Like I said, the, the COVID-19 question is bound to come up. So I always just try to knock it out at the beginning. <laughs> so um, I want to go back to how you two first met. Uh, I believe you were roommates or, or classmates at, at uh, University of Virginia. Is that right? Yep. Um, now, so both, That's all both. we'll say about that. No, uh, <laughs> all right. Well, Neither of us have political futures because of our college years. So. Uh, that's great. Well, okay. Well then, so you guys were classmates and roommates. Did you go there with the intention of going into the Marine Corps afterwards, the two of you? We actually both started off intending to join the Air Force. Um, we were in, we were, we actually met in the Reserve Officer Training Corps program for, for Air Force cadets. Um, I grew up with a Marine Corps father and figured out pretty quickly that childhood social conditioning dictated that I needed to join the Marine Corps. Uh, that was the service branch that made sense to me. Um, and uh, Sarah, 
actually wound up doing the same thing. We, we both liked running around in the woods and getting dirty, and we liked the physical aspect of uh, Marine Corps training, and we were, we were drawn to the culture, I think, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that- yeah, I had a similar yet different spin to, to switching branches. Um, as Kate said, the getting out there, running around in the forest, the forest creature thing, it just, you know, it's been around for a while. Um, lots <laughs> of running around in woods and hurling ourselves at obstacles and um, things like that. And I also felt like as much as I loved Air Force ROTC and I was doing civil air patrol and, and wanted to be a pilot, the Air Force seemed like the best fit. Um, I, I had that sort of intuitive feeling of something was missing that I wanted more out of that, out of my service experience and um, leadership experience that the Marine Corps really emphasized. Um, and the piece that's markedly different for me is that my parents were not happy with my decision to, to switch to the Marine Corps. They've, they've since come around. Um, it's been a while, but, um, my dad was in the Air Force, so I was, I was dealing with that cultural conditioning from my family. Um, but I, I don't regret the switch at all. I want I want to know um, which of the two of you decided to make that switch first and then being roommates and classmates how did that discussion go down or did it go down how did the timing work on that I, I think <laughs> well, I switched Kate's after a, I think I switched after my first year yeah and Kate's a year ahead of me in school okay. so she okay. was already at school and I think well it's Kate don't let me speak for you, but I think you already kind of had that in the works, even when you were still, yeah, in Air Force ROTC when we first met, you were already contemplating. Never underestimate the power of childhood social conditioning. <laughs> so I, I got into Air Force training and I realized that there was um, there was just some noise and some intensity missing. Um, so I decided to switch branches. There wasn't enough screaming. <laughs> I, was missing, I was missing something. I'm yeah. sure the, our, our Marine Corps listeners will appreciate that. And probably our Air Force listeners as well. The, the fact that there was some noise and intensity missing. I have um, a good friend that I served with in the Marine Corps who married an Air Force officer after she got out. And she's been around the Air Force for several years as a result. And she said to all of us, what were we doing? The Air Force is fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> They really like uh, this. is This is great. What were we doing? So it's funny to talk to her now. Uh, that's great. Yeah, they uh, they do a good good job of taking care of their people, and they're always on the cutting edge of technology. Um, and then they always build their their uh, golf course first. So that's <laughs> or at least that's the joke. Um, your uh, I think that's your background there, Kate. We've got kids down in my background too. So just uh, we all tilted our heads like okay. <laughs> So just, was that? <laughs> just so you know, uh, for our listeners, we're all recording these from home. Uh, we are right there with you for those uh, who are working from home. So my little ones are napping right now, but uh, they may be waking up here in a bad mood soon. Uh, so getting back uh, to the show, as far as, so Kate, you're a year ahead. Um, you graduate and you go off to the basic school at Quantico. Um, so obviously commissioned, went to TBS. Uh, Sarah, did you show up at TBS and was Kate still there and did she like hold seniority over you being (laughs) being a a senior second lieutenant? (laughs) No, our timing was staggered uh, for the better or worse. I don't know. No, Kate was always a a very gentle overlord. Um, (laughs) 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 She had already left TBS by the time I got there. I had a little bit of a delay. 
I started in a class in the winter and actually even I got there in the summer and started introductory flight school. So we were still doing IFS at that point in time, if you were already in the pilot pipeline. And then I started TBS um, about five or so months after that. Um, Kate, I think you were already off at MP school and I was just, in Missouri. It would have been great yeah. if we were there together. We know that would have been we would have gotten in more trouble, you know, when you're that close to DC um, and all lieutenants are just, you know, losing their minds. So um, yeah, it was, it was a, a, TBS was not my most favorite experience. I preferred OCS. I liked that. Speaking of the like screaming and the noise, like that level of intensity and just almost the, uh, the singularity of the focus, you know, you know, you're there just for that training, whereas TBS sort of had this illusion of like, as if you were really an officer or as if you were in the real world, but doing TBS when like really you needed to, I think just accept it as almost like a, like a six month deployment, you know, with how much, <laughs> how much time and energy you have to dedicate to it. Yeah. I, I have a, a special place in my heart for TBS lieutenants um, because uh, I was a midshipman uh, at the Naval Academy and we went through Leatherneck there at, at, uh, Quantico and the lieutenants would always seek us out and walk as close as they could to us to make sure that we saluted them. So, oh my goodness, oh <laughs> my goodness. that's so sad. And, and some of them, you know, were a year ahead of us. So, uh, I'm class of 2001 at the academy, and there were guys that were class of 2000 who would walk by us. I'm like, dude, you were at the academy with me six months ago. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, sorry, I get sidetracked really easily. Uh, another reason why I have a, a framework in front of me to go by. <laughs> so, uh, Kate, you were a military police officer. Um, for our listeners, can you explain what the duties are of a military police officer, uh, both stateside and then when you're deployed and how they differ? Yes, definitely. I thought I wanted to be a military police officer because I thought that's as close as a woman can get at that time uh, to combat arms. But I was stationed for my very first duty station in a garrison command. I was stationed with a, a provost marshal's office, meaning my job was going to be law enforcement. So we did security for air shows. We pulled over drunk drivers. We did entries, uh, entry control. And my personality um, was not really suited for that. You saw everybody on their worst day. I showed up at your house right after you beat up your stepdaughter. I mean, that's depressing. And uh, law enforcement, I have so much respect for the work that law enforcement do. Uh, it, was, it was very tough. In a deployed environment uh, or in a field MP environment, uh, you do convoy security, you're working with uh, potentially uh, military working dogs. You're doing much more what I would call interesting work and you, you it's cohesive, it's team focused. Um, yeah, some of our, some of our work overseas involved um, corrections, you know, you're, you're actually detaining, um, you're detaining people that are looking to hurt your friends. And there was, uh, there was a lot of work on deployment that made me love being a military police officer, but in garrison, your job is, is 100% law enforcement. And you see everybody at their at their worst possible moment. Yeah, I'm sure mentally that is uh, that is difficult to take uh, day in and day out, and and the stress that comes with that. We always talk about. I've, I've had several first responders on the show, uh, not military necessarily, but um, the the stress of pulling someone over. Um, you know, even that tiny bit of or seemingly tiny 
uh, event that can spike your adrenaline and potentially go sideways. Whereas when we're deployed as military members, you know, we know that we're deployed. We know that there's potential risk there throughout that deployment. But then when we come back, that's, that kind of shuts off. Whereas the first responders or the police officers, law enforcement officers, every day they're going out there and then coming home, kind of turning the switch on and off, turning it switch on and off. Uh, I can only imagine what that does for, for uh, the, the law enforcement officers out there. Uh, what about you, Sarah? Can you run us through what the Marine Corps intelligence officer, actually, um, can we back up? You said something about flight training before. Uh, maybe maybe you've been hoping I was going to pass over that. Was Were you selected to be an aviator before and, and then became Intel? I was initially. So um, when I first went to Quantico after graduating from school, um, was in that introductory flight school program where basically we uh, got our private pilot license on the Marine Corps dime. So we were either doing that out at uh, the Manassas airport or there were a few who were doing it at Quantico, but most of us were going out to Manassas and doing local and, and cross-country solo flights. And, um, and I, had done, I participated in Civil Air Patrol when I was still in Air Force ROTC in college as well. And um, my dad was a navigator on C-130s, so grew up around aviation um, and just always enjoyed flying and, and being in that environment and thought for sure that that was what I was gonna do um, in the Marine Corps and you know forevermore, 20 years plus. Um, <laughs> but had some medical issues that, um, that arose and that's a short version of it. We might tell more of it later, but essentially needed to switch MOSs. So then I went into aviation intelligence and yeah, so most of my career was really on the, on the intelligence side of the house and similar kind of comparison to in garrison or deployed environments that Kate detailed, like when you're at home, you're, especially with Intel, like, we don't collect on, you know, U.S. citizens, so you're not you're not really practicing that locally. You're doing as much as you can, you know, potentially around what feels more like research. Or um, I know I certainly at, at some points early on in my Intel career felt like um, almost like a journalist, or like you're kind of recapping um, things that other people have already found, and then you know, creating these briefs. And um, of course, that's an important part of the process, but. Then when you get to do it and in the real environment that you've trained for, um, your perceived, you know, real environment being deployed and doing it um, did feel a little more interesting, a lot more interesting, more exciting. Um, and I was with both of my deployments, I was with a, a UAV squadron. So we were doing real time actionable intelligence um, at that point. Um, also, how a similarity to what Kate mentioned as far as, you know, women's access to combat arms. Um, you know, MOSs, initially thinking pilot was also another one of those options to like be in the thick of it. Um, the type of intel I was doing deployed, also it felt like it kept me, kept me really close to the fight. Um, I was in one of the, I think we were the very first class actually where uh, we did a basic intel officer course together. So air intel, ground intel, humant and, and um, SIGINT were all together for a few weeks. Um, and that is one of the best ideas, I think, whoever came up with it in the Marine Corps or, or some other service, um, they were brilliant because by the time we went straight from Intel school, all of us deployed right away because it was 2004 or five. 
um, I knew all the ground guys. I knew all the signet guys. I knew, you know, and when I'm on the radio talking to them and we're supporting them with our UAVs, either doing route recon or um, battle damage assessment, adjusting artillery fire, um, I, I knew a lot of them. They were my friends that I was at school with. And that definitely, definitely helped, especially in those um, high op tempo environments. So work-wise, I loved the deployments. Socially, it feels a little bit like what we're doing now. I'm wondering how many other military people feel like this COVID stuff resembles a deployment of like- This guy. I yeah, social isolation and like, <laughs> yeah, social distancing. Um, so yeah, I enjoyed in that respect, I, I enjoyed my, my work when I was overseas as well. Yeah, what about the, the UAV operators um, and looking back on it with what you know now about mental health, mindfulness, meditation, how were they dealing with what they were seeing and doing? I mean, I know a lot of people kind of envision a UAV operator and they're like, well, they're, they're not really in combat. They don't see a whole lot, but really there's, there's a lot that they're seeing Absolutely. and then there's not a lot that they can do. And that I know can- Recipe uh, re for- Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Did you see any of that? Absolutely. Um, and just to give credit to David Wood's book, What Have We Done? Um, he, he writes about that a little bit um, as another form of moral injury. Definitely yeah. that intersection of um, having input but not control, which it generally is a field for intel. You're kind of always in that space of like, here's what we're seeing, but we're not necessarily the ones then taking that, that action. Um, which can be very frustrating, I, I think, especially when you're when you're young and you're kind of hypercharged to to want to to get out and do tangible, actionable things. Um, some of my most poignant memories from deployments are with, for instance, the the lance corporals and corporals in in our shop who were seeing something on the UAV feed and saying, you know, to our colonel sir, this is what I'm seeing. And, you know, these lieutenant, like majors, lieutenant colonels, colonels disagreeing when they're not the technical experts. And these young Marines are saying, you know, at what point do you say like, sir, I'm the expert on this. This is what I'm seeing. Like there were times that we almost directed, you know, fire on, for, on friendlies because people were disagreeing in the heat of the moment in the, the COC over what they were what they were seeing, whether those were bad guys or good guys. Um, and that was really, really hard on the Marines. You know, everybody would get amped, everybody would get in the COC um, and be in there, I mean, literally yelling and, and going nuts sometimes. Um, and then a lot of times we wouldn't find out really what it was until after after the fact. So there were several times we, we were part of the decision-making process of, you know, dropping live rounds on, on people or not that we should have right. or not. And yeah. that's a lot of responsibility. Oh, absolutely. And, and yeah, I actually spoke with uh, David Wood about a week and a half ago about oh, more injury. Um, and, and the fact uh, that, yes, there's obviously moral injury on, on the battlefield, but there's also moral injury in, in transition. Um, and and in, the, in the fact that you've, you've dedicated a part <laughs> of your life to this mission, this service, and your country in this particular aspect. And now you're hanging up that uniform and it almost feels as though you're going against the grain of, of your morals. Um, how was transition for you? And I'll start with Kate, how, how was that for you? I was, a, I was a case study in what not to do. And 
candidly, a lot of the research, a lot of the writing that I that I did in later years was informed by a period of um, self-destructive wandering. I, I really struggled with transition. My identity was very tied to being a Marine Corps officer. My people were all fellow Marine Corps officers. I had originally intended to get out, but after my deployment, I saw the world in us versus them. There were Marines that understood what was happening overseas, and then there was everybody else. And I didn't have any desire to be close to the everybody else. So I, uh, I had a really difficult time leaving, although I wanted to leave. I wanted to go to graduate school. I wanted to carve out a civilian identity. I stumbled and uh, made a great many mistakes on my way to doing that. Sarah? I'm gonna sound like a ditto again, um, <laughs> in the, some, some similarities and, and some differences, but I, when I got back from my second deployment had felt pretty, uh, pretty kicked in the teeth by the whole experience. Um, and my initial commitment time was up, wanted to get out, struggled, had lots of conversations with Kate, I'm sure at the time, um, all of us just, you know, reaching that, that point around a similar timeline of, of what now, and you've either done a deployment or two or, or more and, and thinking, gosh, can I, can I keep doing this? I want to do it, but I don't want to do it. Um, let alone what's happening with any of your relationships back home. Um, and I decided to stay in as well. And I, I moved out to DC and I became the deputy director of the geospatial intelligence directorate at MCIA at Marine Corps intelligence activity. And um, so a, a garrison assignment that was definitely very different than the previous several years experience I'd had with a small unit. I mean, UAV squadrons are, are tiny. Um, there were only two in the Marine Corps at the time. So we were just port and starboard constantly on those deployments. Um, and most of the enlisted Marines were with those units kind of indefinitely. So, I mean, they were really just stacking up deployments right. um, year after year. And, um, and that assignment was was tough. Um, ultimately, I was glad that I stayed in for, for that final assignment. I felt like ultimately I got out kind of on my own terms versus feeling like kind of shoved out or just desperately wanting to get the, the F out kind of feeling. Um, I was definitely ready by the time I, I did finish that a, a couple of years at that assignment. Um, but I too did did my own share of self-destructive stuff um, and initially just didn't talk about it and was like, that part of my life is over. I'm going to go. I went overseas and did stuff that had nothing to do with the military, um, just civilian volunteer work in um, Turkey and Portugal. And then just was like a backpacker. I traveled around the world for about a year and was in total denial about most things that I had experienced the previous like eight years or so. And didn't tell much of anybody anything about what I had done before and tried on this identity of like, I'm civilian girl backpacker out in the world doing my thing. And, um, and then eventually came home and started to, to face stuff again um, in a different way. And, and in some ways that traveling did, was, was therapeutic and very helpful in its own way. But um, you know, as we all know, you come back, you come back to your same stuff, it's still with you. A lot of it so um, I've definitely yeah been been in active therapeutic relationships um, most of the last 20 years <laughs> to try to support specifically that transition and, and, and others so yeah I'm, I'm gonna be doing my own uh, 
I don't know, existential crisis here in a, in a few months, but uh, I'm going to have my, my family with me as I travel around America in the RV. Uh, it's going to be my, my wife and my two littles and a, and a new puppy. So I'm yeah. not sure <laughs> what I'm thinking, but. It'll That's be like the American version of being the backpacker, right? That's right. Like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. different, right? And there, there's pieces of that. I you meet, you know, there's a, a plus and a minus to meeting people who don't know your past, right? You're out in that environment and kind of again trying on how much you share or not right. um, was definitely something I did a lot of um, uh, while I while I was bouncing around that year for sure. Well, and that's kind of the the double-edged sword of being a woman veteran too. Yeah. If you want to blend into, if you don't ever want to be identified as a veteran again, you can get away with that. Mm -hmm. You take your hair out of the bun and you look like a normal girl. Mm -hmm. um, and and that was absolutely uh, my experience. I I didn't want to share with people. I didn't share uh, anything about my past experiences mm -hmm. with people volitionally. I did. I I was yeah. very. I kept things close to the vest. I will say the one the one place that the experience that stands out to me where I, I made it and it made a very conscious choice to share was um, this group that I was with this volunteer group in Portugal. Um, I was the only person from the US uh, in this group and um, and the oldest one I think I was 28 and they were all like 20. Um, and these two young women from uh, Croatia and another one from Bosnia and to hear them talk about their experience as young children with the Civil War and the aftermath. Um, and something, there was some, they knew I had been in the military. That was the only time I had that converse, a conversation and it was with them specifically around like being in an environment like that. And I remember feeling like that's a totally different experience of, of war that sure. I can't even wrap my head around. Like they remember fleeing in the middle of the night, you know, and, and these, these girls saying, you know, if my parents knew I was talking to this girl from Croatia or from Bosnia, they'd be furious, you know, and here they were, we were in this camps or volunteer kind of campsite setting for several weeks together. And, and they, they all became very close. Um, but when they went home, they weren't going to tell their families about it. Yeah. And I just found that to be <clears throat> at that time, that fresh out of the Marine Corps, such a, an eye-opener experience to hear them to hear them talk about what what they've been through but in a way i'm sure it was almost um <clears throat> refreshing in that they were bonding on the human level and not so much just their cultural or um, ethnicity background so that you know they saw one another as humans and they and they were friends that way but yeah when they went home they weren't going to share that with their their family um how how did you both decide to go down the path that you you did end up taking after the core? Not so much the the trip to Europe um, and the self destructive path, but the the mental health arena that you uh, that you've gotten yourselves into. How did you decide upon that? Was that something you decided upon, or was that something you kind of had your uh, uh, life changing event kind of force your hand to go that way? What what, uh, what happened there? Um, this time I'll start with Sarah. Uh, well, I, mine was a bit more of a, of a concrete event. I, when I came back from traveling, I took a job in DC with a defense contractor, which thankfully, you know, easy to find a job in that kind of setting with that kind of background. So I felt very, very fortunate 
to, um, you know, be able to get out. And then when I was ready to work to have that job available and, um, intellectually loved it. I was getting to do a combo of, um, human intel, sociocultural intelligence and geospatial intelligence all kind of overlapped and, and working with, um, with really dynamic teams in a, in a cool setting that I enjoyed and thought for sure that was what I would be doing for a while. Um, I'd had some inklings of interest, more than inklings, but you know, of, of mental health, physical health, um, just from my personal experience, struggling with those things, both active duty and afterwards, um, in addition to stress injury, experiences with trauma and associated mental health challenges there. I also had a lot of physical ailments that were, um, in retrospect, not unusual, but at the time felt like this is really weird. I'm in my 20s and feel like I'm in my 80s. Like what's going on? Um, I was at this new job in DC and had what um, was later thought to be a mini stroke um, while I was while I was at work. And we're still not totally sure that that's actually what it was, um, but something happened. One of my pupils was severely dilated. I'd been having strange headaches and one-sided pain all week, long story short, get rushed to the hospital. Um, and at the time was told it could be a bunch of different things that all sounded very serious. And saw a bunch of different specialists and the conclusion was stress. Like you may think you love your job right now and you're in a safe, happy home and all these things are, cause I'm like, I love my job and I got great friends and like, I'm living the life. Like what's the deal? to really have like so many doctors be like, do you not understand how stress impacts the body? Cause you need to wrap your head around that. Like your body's trying to kill you right now. Like your body is shutting down because you've had all of this happen, you know, the last 10 years or so. Um, and you need to figure something out. And I, I agreed at that point was like, that was my, that was my wake up call, really my epiphany. And in retrospect, you could see lots of things leading up to it. Um, and combo of, of that and having people tell me like, Hey, you know, people pay, pay people to be like life coaches and stuff. Like I had a lot of people who were asking advice for me a lot of times and, um, starting to say, Hey, you know, you should write a book or you should be a life coach or you should go back to school. I'd already been interested in going back to school, but thought I was going to do it for geospatial stuff. Um, I left my job in DC and decided I wanted to write a book. That was how it started. I was like, I'm going to write a book. Um, but as I started getting into it more and more felt like I wanted and needed more education, both personally and professionally. Um, so I started pursuing things like um, integrative health coaching certifications, yoga, teacher certifications, my master's in social work, and then being friends with someone like Kate, who is an awesome nerd friend. Uh, <laughs> she's always my academic inspiration. Um, just being really inspired by her, honestly, and friends who were, were doing things like that um, after they got out of the Marine Corps and, and applying both their experience and then their knowledge in these really interesting ways. So um, really everything that like Kate was reading and doing at the time, I think I was like, oh, I wanna read that too, or like send me, you know, and it was all again, very like, she was still in, in grad school at, at that point that I kind of had that experience and, um, you know, very academic, but found it interesting. And so, yeah, definitely some credit to Kate there for sure. And, and just my own personal experience is kind of pushing me in that direction. Interesting. And uh, I definitely want to come back to your book. Uh, I'm going to get on 
topic on all your books, but first I want to hear from, from Kate. Uh, what about yourself? How did you get into doing what it is you're doing now? I think for me, a lot of it has been an attempt to make meaning of lived experience. So um, my it started off, I knew I wanted to pursue public health professionally, health promotion, the idea of behaviors that can get in the way of negative health outcomes. Um, but it was my brother getting wounded in Iraq that informed my interest in adaptive wellness for veterans. So what happens when an athlete is no longer physically the same and they still want to be an athlete? And that was my brother's situation. Um, so I started off really interested in, uh, in adaptive physical programming. And the more I studied and the more I talked to people, the more I worked with people, the more I realized that for so many veterans, the mental, emotional, and social components are really, really important. And at the same, at that same time, uh, I had gotten married to another Marine because that is what you do. <laughs> um, I had I'm picking up on your sarcasm an, there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of us do it, and he had what, and I, I always take a step, I take a step back because I was really close to the situation, it's not fair for me to throw out a diagnosis. He had an undiagnosed condition, whether it was a stress injury or an undiagnosed mental health condition. Um, and a lot of the stuff that come with those undiagnosed conditions are um, maladaptive coping behaviors like alcohol abuse, drug abuse. Um, there was, we had some, some violence in our home. I mean, we had a, a, we had a Jerry Springer situation happening. Um, in my personal life. And I really struggled with my own response to that situation. Um, I couldn't figure out why it took me so long to see red flags. I couldn't figure out why it took me so long to identify that there was a problem with him, me, or with the relationship in general. And I got really interested in this notion of stigma against care seeking, because I believe incredibly strongly that the military trains us to seek strength and look for strength and to eschew any kind of illness, injury as a weakness. So I, I believe, as I, as I thought through that process in hindsight, I really believe that I was totally not equipped to see that my relationship had come, become destructive, my partner had a problem, um, you know, that I was dealing with some, with some unmanaged stress injury, I was totally not equipped to see that that was happening. And I studied it for a living. I, I literally studied public health and, and how do we promote wellness and, and all of those things. But I was absolutely on some level, there was a block. And, and I believe that block is stigma. And you see that in our community. We don't want to see mental health problems in ourselves. And we don't want to see it in those close to us. So it took me a long time to kind of process and take a step back. Um, but all of the subsequent work that I that I did was informed by those experiences. Yeah, I fully agree about the stigma, um, and and it's definitely something we need to change. And that's actually one of the the kind of points behind this podcast. Um, when you do get a chance to listen to it, you'll hear in the intro that that's one of the missions is to break down the stigma of seeking mental health support. Um, and I mean, it, it's funny in that we expect our service members to be at the peak mentally but then we tax them in sleep we tax them in stress 
Um, they may not be eating correctly. And, you know, all these physiologically, physiological changes and stresses that we put on them, how that taxes them mentally. And then, and then, then there's still a stigma about seeking mental health support. It's, it's almost as though if we told them that going to the gym was a bad thing, um, I mean, going to the gym is obviously not a bad thing. Going to the gym, you want to maintain your physical fitness. You want to maintain your health. Well, the same can be said about your mental health. You want to go and seek mental health support, not necessarily when something breaks or something falls off, but when you're good and you want to maintain that, that level of goodness, I guess, uh, for lack of a better term right now. But that's, uh, that's the analogy that I try to always draw. Um, my uh my thing when i was uh, a commander i had a uh a calendar behind my desk that was big that everybody could see and i would write mental health appointments on there in big red letters and and uh the guys would come up to me like hey dude um what's what's going on man you, you all right I'm, yeah, yeah I, I was gonna I'm say fine. when they ask you <laughs> yeah, yeah i mean they, they asked me some pretty pointed questions but I would tell them, yeah, I'm, I'm doing fine. I just want to maintain my mental health. And I think that's the story that we need to get to, the level that we need to get to is where it is okay. And not only is it okay, but it's encouraged to seek mental health support uh, before we fall off whatever cliff is is bound to, to have us fall off it down the road. And um, that's, that's exactly what Sarah and I spend all of our time working on is this notion mm -hmm. of mental health promotion in the in the pre before stuff hits a crisis point how right. can we promote resilience and and mental health because it's it's simply more satisfying to upstream things you know to to not i i don't look back on any of my experiences um either in a deployed environment or getting out of the marine corps or you know uh, leaving fractured relationships. I don't look at that and want that for anybody else. So if we can prevent points of crisis with mental health promoting behaviors, that's exciting work. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's fun. That's important stuff. I love the idea of putting it on a calendar and being prepared <laughs> to answer questions about it. <laughs> oh, I knew, uh, I knew those questions when we were going to be coming. The downside to it all is, is that you don't necessarily know that you've made a positive effect right mm -hmm. uh it, if they're not getting in trouble that's a that's a positive thing if they're not complaining of of suicidal ideations or um self-harm then that's a positive thing but you don't know that necessarily you change that so mm -hmm. it's kind of hard to draw those lines of correlation but they're there they are definitely there um so okay i want to move on to the the next topic because i do want to uh i don't want to hold you guys for too long um and, and I and I definitely can. <laughs> so uh, I'll move on. So uh, Sarah, in the intro, I spoke about all, all the different irons that you have in, in the fire, including uh, about to have a little one. Um, can you specifically tell us about Sempa Sarah and how that started and what it is and uh, and everything else we should know about Semper Sarah? Sure. Well, um, it's a it's a name of my business I've loved and hated at different points in time, <laughs> given the uh, the Marine Corps connection and and just being uh, was trying to have that connection be a little more subtle. I started actually with MarineChick.com. There's a whole history there, and I was like, you know, I don't think that's really the right fit right now. I uh, 
No, so I, and, and I feel like I say this a lot, and I'll, I'll say it again after what Kate was just describing. She so eloquently put to, to words what um, a concept I was trying to capture as well, that, um, that, that desire to be proactive and within our community because of our, our personal experience being, um, you know, what it was that I felt very almost like evangelistic about things once I started learning about, I'm like, oh my gosh, right? What if I had known this? Like, could even one of those terrible days have been prevented, right? Or, or softened the blow in some way. Um, and if for me, if not for how many others, you know, now that I know this, just really feeling this passion and responsibility and, and calling to share it in any way that I possibly could. Um, and of course, depending on who your audience is, that's, that's going to be different. And that's going to look like a lot of irons in the fire sometimes. Whereas I'm like, ultimately it's all under this resilience building, proactive, integrative health umbrella. Um, and the social worker in me, it sees it as like a great place to then customize for people based on what their access to certain types of care or food or resources or name the thing is, right? Because not everybody even has access to all this stuff that we may be like, just have a green smoothie every day, right? And someone's like, I can't buy a blender. So <laughs> what do I do? You know, or I hate green food, Kate, you know, I mean, whoever, <laughs> Kate gives me a hard time about food stuff. Um, <laughs> Beets. She doesn't like beets. That's what she doesn't like. I she tried to made make me a hamburger out of beets. Who eats hamburgers made out of beets? That's a lot just of weird. A lot I of. Can't, I can't hear the word beets without thinking about the office and thinking yeah. beets, beets bears, bears battle stomach. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Every time my wife makes beets, that's what we say to one another. <laughs> so we. Um, so Kate um, has not forgotten her beet burger experience that I tried to force upon her many years ago. Um, but yeah, because sometimes it's, sometimes it is food and that's a great place to start with people because it's tangible food and fitness are these things that relatively speaking, we can feel like we have control over. And again, given the experience in the Marine Corps and, um, and as an athlete, those were initially my go-tos too, with that, that kind of physical realm of health. Um, but I had also had a very transformative experience with yoga and meditation during my second deployment. It was very in my, in like clicked in my, my head and my heart that that was going to be a component of something I did at some point when I got out of the Marine Corps. Um, and then also knowing the, even gosh, 10 years ago, the kind of cultural, um, you know, pal palatable, like whether or not people even wanted to talk about it compared to now. I mean, there's still a lot of people who might brush it off or think it's woo woo or weird. Um, but it's certainly easier to discuss with people now than it was even 10 years ago. Um, but felt like, hey, I've been in at least some some shoes that are probably similar to to um, you know people who have served that that might um, be you know a way to kind of grease the skids to talk about some of this stuff. Um, so yoga was a really big component of my of my work initially through Semper Sarah, um, and then I I did go um, complete a year long training course for holistic health coaching, and so I wanted. Um, immediately to connect that component of mindfulness and, and the concept of holistic health um, and, and find a way to share that with other people. And primarily my initial focus was on the military and veteran community. It, again, just being like, gosh, I was there. This would have helped. I didn't know any of this stuff. I had a, a PT, I think, when one of my knees was busted up, be like, have you ever thought about like 
your whole system impacting your health. And I was like, what? What does that even mean? Like he was talking to me about very broadly the concept of holistic health and it just felt totally, totally new to me at the time. Um, so yeah, so through Semper Sarah, it was initially wanting to write a book that communicated some of, some of that stuff, as much of it as I could, uh, uh, based on, um, even the limited knowledge I had at the time combined with personal experience, just to share that because, um, I thought it could be helpful. And then, um, starting to offer services as I built my credentialing and experience, um, through primarily the coaching um, and the yoga and then teaching in, in large settings or speaking at events and things like that. And then eventually going on to get my master's and having that more clinical kind of formal background and then combining that with everything and continuing to write, um, primarily, honestly, with Kate, a lot of those academic articles and, and books and things that I've, um, contributed to have, have been a lot of the work that Kate and I have done together. Um, program, I mean, program evaluation and development has been really, really fun. Kate and I have done a lot of that together, both through our own independent programming and then for other like existing um, nonprofits and VSOs, um, helping them develop programs and things like that. Um, it's been so fun. Um, nice. I'll, I'll cut myself off there because I feel like Good I'm talking about that forever. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's great to hear it. And you can tell that you have a passion for everything that you're involved in. And that's, uh, that's fantastic. So uh, Kate, Doc Kate, I think that's the, uh, the website. Is that right? DocKate.com? Yeah, or? that's right. I thought it would be easy to remember. It is because uh, I, I do not have that one written down, <laughs> but uh, that one that one is uh, pretty easy to remember. So, tell us about what uh, what you're doing with that. Not just the website, obviously, but the the organization that it, it, it is. And I and I also want you to, if you can, touch on the the living with cancer piece that I saw on that site. Sure. So my goal the the more I studied public health, the more I fell in love with it. And my goal was to enter higher education and become what I think of as a translational researcher. So yes, I, I do research, I run data, I can write you something that you're not going to want to read, and, and that can be in a scientific journal article, great. But all of the research that I do, I try to turn it into something, it's either going to become a program that that we're delivering, and Sarah and I have done a lot of that together. Um, it's going to become something that I write an op-ed about, I make policy suggestions about. Um, it's going to be something that informs my speaking. So I've done a fair amount of speaking about mental health promotion and, and building resilience um, to, a variety of, to a variety of different clients and different places. My life changed a lot in 2018. Uh, I, I got diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer, and that is, uh, it's incurable. You're basically going to be uh, in treatment, uh, trying to slow it down for as much time as you have. So that was one of those opportunities that you probably don't love having an opportunity to practice what you teach other people. Are you actually resilient? Do you believe these things that you say? Um, can you accept this change with grace? Can you get your family ready? Can you find a new normal at work? Can you do all of those things? And it's taken me, so I got diagnosed in January of 2018, and I would say it's been, it's been a, a path over the last couple of years, figuring out what, um, 
what life looks like because I don't want to just dump everything that I've built. I still want to write. I still want to be a translational researcher. I love, absolutely love what I do, but I have a five-year-old. I need to be, I need to be really making as many memories with him as possible. So I can't work at the pace. I, I used to joke that I know how to go zero miles per hour and 90 miles per hour, but finding the 45 has been a life challenge for me. And that's what I'm trying to do now is find the 45, you know, do a little bit of work um, and, and carve space for things that maybe I was neglecting before in, in the pace of, in the pace of everything. Yeah. And and how important is that? I mean, this, that's another uh, way to look at what we're all going through right now with COVID-19 is, um, you know, we, we may be stressed out because we have our kids at home. Um, but when I'm done with this recording here today, I'm going to go downstairs and I don't have to drive 45 minutes either way uh, to get to or from my, my children. And they're right there. And, uh, and the same with my, my wife is that I get to spend a little bit more time with her. Although she may visit, she may view that differently. So. You should ask her if she's enjoying that. <laughs> Might be a good uh, time to get some feedback. She's probably glad I'm upstairs <laughs> and not down, down there. Um, so I know you've both talked about um, books that you've, you've authored and, and um, now I want to transition to the, the book that you are co-authoring or just finished co-authoring, uh, co The Stopping Military Suicides. And, and I said at the beginning in the intro that I had a blurb there, but why, why have me cover it when I've got the two authors that, that can cover it? Um, can you guys tell us what, I mean, obviously the, the title is self-explanatory as far as the overarching what it's about. But can you tell us kind of what drove that that project, how you guys came together on it, and then uh, and then the details about that? Well, a lot of the work we do in military mental health promotion is focused on this this public health crisis that is veteran suicide numbers. And you know, Sarah and I were actually joking when we submitted the finished manuscript to the publisher is that it it feels like the compilation of everything we've done, you know, separately and together for the last. 15 years, and and that's a really good feeling, but we take the approach that you can make a dent in those, in those, you know, disturbing, unacceptable, terrible numbers. You can make a dent in those numbers if you really focus on individual and community level resilience, if you really focus on upstreaming, upstreaming, and that's what we try to break down. And we try to do it really accessibly. So there are three things that make a person resilient. And the research shows, and we kind of share some of that research and, and tell some stories. The research shows that you can actually train yourself. A third of people are naturally resilient. I'm not one of those people. My life experience has shown me. <laughs> but the rest of us can, can learn to be incredibly resilient. We can teach and train ourselves um, individually and then with groups and with community. So we talk about the importance of social support for military veterans. What does that really look like? Because it's not surrounding yourself with folks who share all of the same imbalances that you already have. You know, what does it mean to find healthy social support and accountability partners? Uh, And we share, you know, we share stories from our own lives uh, and, and others. Uh, about that concept. We talk about nervous system regulation because 
you have to regularly and repeatedly, as though you were working on your biceps, you have to downregulate your own nervous system to really be optimally mentally fit, to be wired for stress. So we talk about the science behind that. If I tell you that, maybe you believe me, but we, we really, we try to give you the why behind why we're saying find <laughs> three minutes of downregulation every day. And then we talk about purpose and spirituality and that, that need to connect and matter outside of self that's so important to every human, but to military veterans in particular. Sarah, did you have anything to add on that? <laughs> I, I guess <laughs> it covered Knocked everything. it out of the park. Yeah, the only, right. I, I would add that I think, you know, the although our focus certainly by the title alone you can hear is on, on the military population, Another thing that we've discussed, though, is how applicable it is across communities and populations. And so, you know, some of the other work um, to briefly piggyback onto the, the Semper Sara specific side of my, my business is, has also been in, in corporate environments with top leadership teams and executive teams because the, depending on who your audience is, right, we're, we're reframing it potentially, you know, with some cultural competency and things like that. But the, the baseline science is, is the same and we're all relatively wired the same and whether that's from stress trauma prolonged or acute um all the different scenarios that we face there's there's just so much good foundation um, that we can use across populations and across settings that apply so i just want to add that that even though that title makes it sound very military focused and although the the vignettes and the stories are primarily um, about ours and other military experiences um, feedback I've gotten from some of that that work that we've already shared with other people who are who don't have any experience with the military are like man this totally applies to me um, especially to athletes um, that's another space where I've worked a lot I found a lot of similarity especially with college athletes and identity when they get out and they're maybe not going pro or continuing to play um, very very similar um, transition um, issues that, that we may see with military communities there again not a hundred percent across the board but um, and then even with with people who have been working their whole lives again non-military settings but your identity and and joy in many ways can be tied to that work and, and what you're producing and if that shifts in some way whether through role or retiring um, how do you manage your physiological responses to that and the the places where um, within your lifestyle, changes are being made. Again, how do you, how do you adjust your flow? You know? Well, I think it's so important to realize, uh, and we try to outline that, a lot of what works in trauma treatment is also useful for general performance optimization exactly. or performance enhancement. Yeah. A lot of the techniques are, are similar. So the applicability and the, the we want this to be useful. We want you to read it and say, okay, I learned three things that I can go put into my schedule and it might change my headspace a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that was really the goal of the book. Yeah, that it doesn't have to necessarily be this very clinical, like trauma healing, although that can be beneficial there. It's applicable in a yeah peak performance setting or just life enhancement. Like how do I how do I smooth some of these bumps in the road? Like, I'm going to get- How do get I parent a toddler that's yeah. making me crazy? <laughs> <laughs> Help. Yep, yep. I think, again, we're all there. Um, yeah. yeah, funny, Sarah, that you mentioned the, the parallels there with athletes. Um, in September, I, I went to a program up at Dartmouth Business School at Tuck. They have a program called Tuck Next Step. Uh, you may have heard of it, mm -hmm. where, where the uh, transitioning military- service members and elite athletes and we are all in the class together 
because we were all in a transition of some sort. And uh, it's really interesting. Like day one, we have the social where all the athletes are on one side of the room and, you know, they're all, they all know one another from the Olympics or from the NBA or whatever. Uh, I mean, not knocking that. That's pretty big, but um, <laughs> whatever. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, and then there's us, the transitioning military members on the other side of the room talking about military jargon and whatever else. Um, but by like day two, we all realize that we're going through the same thing. And by day three, we're all like the same. We're, we're all sharing about how we've all identified as that military member for so long. We're identified as that Olympic gold medalist. And that's literally who we've become. And now we have to become something else and how tough that transition is. And that comes full circle back to the David Woods, uh, you know, fact that transition is in and of itself a, a moral injury of sort. Um, so uh, thanks for touching on that. As far as the book, um, is that book out or is that due out soon? What's uh, When's that coming out? It's out for pre-order and it'll be out this fall. Great, great. Well, I will make sure that I put a plug for that in, uh, obviously we've been talking about it, but I'll put a plug in the notes uh, for, for everyone to, to look for when that comes out. Um, what about the two of you personally? Um, what is your personal, do you have a, a personal meditation or mindfulness practice? I mean, Sarah, you mentioned at the beginning, kind of getting outdoors with your, uh, what did you call your, your little one, uh, Woodsy? My little, or, forest, my little forest creature. Yeah, forest creature. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, that, I mean, that in and of itself is a mindfulness thing. But what about, do you have a, a formal practice? Um, Sarah, I'll start mm -hmm. with you. Sure. Uh, it has evolved over time, pre-children. <laughs> pre um, I started every day since January 2012, every day with um, a, a 10 or 20 minute meditation, sometimes guided if I was listening to a track or just um, breath or meditation that, that I knew and practiced. Um, and I had practiced sporadically before that and had been impactful, but I would say like my real, like a daily practice really started in 2012 for me. Um, and then often was then doing like a physical yoga asana practice later in the day as well. Um, even saying that now just sounds luxurious to me. Um, <laughs> once I had a child, um, you know, in all seriousness, I noticed, uh, I mean, I, I experienced some postpartum anxiety and I, and I knew that my neglecting my daily practice made an impact. I was just in such a space that um, I, I didn't stick with it. Um, I think if I didn't have this training and education and experience that I had, I think it would have been worse. I think the fact that I could even see that I was suffering was probably a, a, a further gap for me to recognize than I would have without all of this, right? I wouldn't have sure. even known it before. Um, so things started to change and I, I had to accept that like what my mindfulness was going to be with a newborn was taking three deep breaths while I was nursing, right? Or going to take a shower and breathing deeply while I was taking that five minute shower, what, you know, like finding it in these places and accepting that and seeing that as the practice and like, oh yeah, here's our yoga off the mat. Like for realsies, like <laughs> you've got to do it right. And you've got to weave it into the day and our attitude about it impacting its impact on us. Like if I don't think it's helping me, it, it may not be as impactful, but if I believe I, you know, I know this, and this is where I would say, you know, Kate and I cite the research all the time, like three minutes a day, right? It doesn't have to be 
an hour long class at a studio. You don't have to be sitting on a pillow, like no kidding, even gosh, 30 seconds, if that's what you can get and um, trying to stick with it there. So um, as our schedule has become more regular um, with the two-year-old, I've gotten back to having some more regularity, but I'm about to be in the weeds again. So there you are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good I'm luck just, with that. I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to build up right now. Um, remembering, um, yeah, what the research shows. Cause there are times that that's like, I don't feel it. You know, I've got, I, I I'm in the headspace saying intellectually, I know this is benefiting me, even if I don't feel that, that buzz or that reward every single time I'm going to do it. I'm going to do something. Every there you day. go. There you go. Well, good luck. Uh, <laughs> good luck. <Thank> <laughs> Talk to you guys at the end of the year. Uh, <laughs> uh, what about yourself, Kate? Do you do you have any type of personal practice for meditation or mindfulness? Uh, I would I would say it's changed over time and it's changed uh, with circumstance. So again, before kids, I would run trails with my dog, and that was um, we had a specific route. I could just kind of tune out. It was incredibly incredibly helpful to me. Um, now, Matthew's five, he's getting older. I'm kind of out from under the baby. So I get to go to a yoga class more often. But what I really do is I have a, I have a specific meditation app that I use at night and I do breath work at night. And I, I really like that. It freaks my husband out because he'll be sleeping and then he'll hear voices. And um, he's, he's said many a time that voices. he's concerned about his mental health when I, when I'm turning that on. But uh I just, I really agree with what Sarah said. You have to sneak it in. Um, I will do it randomly at the kitchen table when, when my son is, is, you know, yipping in my ear because I know I need a couple of really long, slow, deep breaths mm -hmm. and, and you can, you can insert it into your day. Nice. Nice. Well, uh, we're at about an hour 20 here. Um, and as I covered at the beginning of the show, uh, <laughs> go another uh, 10. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now we need to get, <laughs> well, we could get there. Uh, I, I have plenty of things here. Uh, I mean, we could talk about the, uh, the military soccer team that you're on, or, I mean, I've got, I've got some notes, but, um, I'll save you guys the, the time and hopefully give you some time to meditate afterwards, do some breathing drills. Um, what have we not spoken about? that you guys want to make sure that we cover. Sarah, I'll start with you. Sorry. No, I just, you know, it's, there's so many different ways to practice mindfulness. Even I give my answer and then I hear Kate talk and I'm like, oh yeah, oh my gosh, and trail running and my dog. And I mean, I think that just broadening that concept of, of mindfulness, I find to be so helpful um, because of course there's still this impression of like it's yoga or it's meditation and there are so many ways to do it and believing in the power of it even in those small places um, and and the capacity to access it even regardless of circumstance um, but sometimes it takes learning what that is right if we don't know it we don't know it um, and I find that the more I try to be conscious about practicing it in my own life, especially as circumstances continue to, to shift and in many ways feel more challenging again, that um, I hope it makes me a more compassionate and, and empathetic teacher or counselor or coach um, in, in the settings that I'm working in. And um, I certainly appreciate friends like Kate always keeping me looped into the smarty pants side, side of things as well. And you make me sound like such a nerd. Well, you are. But you're like a fun nerd. You know, it's like good nerd. Uh, 
That's good roommates right there. <laughs> We've been friends uh, for 21 years now. So. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Wow. Yes, in the next 10 minutes, I will tell you some stories about Sarah Plummer Taylor, and that is how we will spend the next 10 minutes. No, she not. once kicked a glass door in. <laughs> wow. But that was an accident. So that wasn't like an angry. Well, I mean, I anyway. Let's not tell that. So when I go, uh, when I do the podcast notes, normally what I do is I I make like a list of bullet points of what we discussed. That one will be a bullet point of how Sarah kicked down the glass door. She 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 breaks glass ceilings. I will (laughs) say the, the sports stuff. Even that, like the the being able to integrate that. Um even in very aggressive sports. I played Australian rules football for a long time as well. And um, that's another interesting place to be like in liminal space between very aggressive um, athletic women. And then them knowing that I taught and practiced yoga and like being like, all right, what's the, like, they'd call me a witch, like, Oh, what's the witch going to bring her potions today? Like essential oils, like freaked them out or, you know, like, also learning how to play a really aggressive sport like that actually was a big challenge for me because I felt like I've, I've tried to disown some of the violence that I associate with the Marine Corps. And when I get out on the field, I turn a little bit crazy. I mean, like people are, it's a very physical sport. And that was a, a working practice and mindfulness for me while I was still playing too. Like, how do I get aggressive without feeling like I'm going to lose it or go off the rails or get like, be immersed in this kind of a form of violence again. Um, it was, yeah, sometimes it was funny and other times I would just like feel nuts about it too. Cause I didn't, I didn't know where to land with that or how to, how to practice it and feel like I was being authentic, like teaching a yoga class and like, Oh, la, la, this piece. And then going out and like, you know, hitting people and running yeah. around like a maniac. So <laughs> I think you'd get along well with my wife. She was a, a, a very competitive she is a very competitive person, uh, played volleyball and, and soccer in college. Um, and she can turn that, uh, that aggressiveness on, um, uh, in a good way. Um, yeah, it's, so, a, it's, yeah. A, it's a switch you can flip sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Yep. <laughs> well, all right. This has been awesome. Uh, I really appreciate the, the time you two, um, what's the best way for someone to contact you if they wanted to have uh, you come and talk with them or they wanted to learn more about you? Uh, Kate. Uh, you. you can find all, you can find um, links to my writing and my work and, and get in touch with me at dotkate.com. Okay. That's dockate.com, dockate.com. And, uh, and, and Sarah. All my stuff lives at sempersarah.com, S-E-M-P-E-R sarah with an h.com um and then i've got some newly evolved work that focuses primarily on families so around pediatric sleep consulting and family wellness that lives at mymindfulfamily.com nice nice yeah. and uh i know sarah i know you're at least on social media kate are you on uh social media there facebook and instagram Facebook and Instagram. There you go. Well, I'll find you guys links and I'll make sure that those are shared in the show notes as well. So Sarah and Kate, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for sharing your stories. Thanks for what you did in the Marine Corps. And thank you for what you're doing now to, uh, to help with mental health and, and everything else that you're doing. So uh, I really appreciate your time. Appreciate you. Thanks for the work you're doing and and getting word out through the podcast and everything through Veterans Path. I think it's awesome. 
it's a lot of fun and uh yeah, definitely a, a, a work of a work of love. And a, I think it's something that's important. So yeah, until uh, until we speak again, you guys stay safe and stay healthy. Likewise. Take care. For our listeners, thanks for listening to our show. Please check out Veterans Path online at veteranspath.org. We too are on social media. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please hit the subscribe button and share it with your friends and family. And remember, listeners can directly support Veterans Path by clicking on the support button on the podcast or by visiting veteranspath.org forward slash donate. Thank you all and have a blessed day. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Veterans Path Podcast. Please follow us on social media and think about sharing your story with us there and potentially on the show. Together, we can make mental health a priority, improving and saving lives.